right, since you didn't get to hear that in its entirety, let's go to Mr. Rock and Roll, the Belladines, playing this Friday at the Railway. Tracy Fuller. It's Wednesday, February 26th, I believe, and this is the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM right here in Vancouver. I have a jam-packed show lined up for you, just as usual. Um, I've got an interview with the Executive Director of BC's Association of Magazine Publishers, a review of the Betsheva Dance Company's show Deca Dance, a spin on the wheel with UBC's Pottery Club, a repeat of Amy Zion's How Soon Is Now, critique of the VAG's new art show, and an interview with Vancouver journalist Francis Beulah. So let's get right to it. I don't know if you're reading the Globe and Mail or any of the other news sources last Monday, but Canadian, the Canadian Heritage Minister James Moore announced a new $75.5 million Canadian periodical fund for magazines and community newspapers in Canada. Now, that sounds like great news, right? Well, hold your horses. This is the Harper government. We are talking about the, quote, new money for the... Canadian Periodical Fund is actually the amalgamation of the government's long-standing publications assistance program and the Canada Magazine Fund, both of which were established around 2000. The Heritage Minister Moore says the single fund will be more, quote, modern and streamlined, and it will allow its recipients to use their allowance more flexibly. Now, specifically, the new Canadian Periodical Fund will provide $72 million annually for Canadian magazines and non-daily newspapers, which publishers, which publishers of which can use as they see fit. $1.5 million, both for print and online magazines, will be provided, which have limited access to capital but which provide an important developmental ground for the industry two more 
Two million other dollars will go towards industry-wide industry projects facilitated by industry associations. But the new fund also comes with some drawbacks, or some uncertainties at least. Uh, only magazines and non-daily newspapers with paid or requested circulation of it, and at least 80% Canadian content will be eligible for the fund. And the maximum amount of an individual title can receive will be $1.5 million. Now, that seems like a lot, but when you consider the number of small magazines, small newspapers, and publications throughout Canada, 1.5 million is not very much, and I believe it is a lot less than some of our larger publications have been receiving in the past. So I wanted to find out how this new Canadian Periodical Fund will affect the 80-plus periodicals that are produced here in BC. So earlier this afternoon, I spoke with Rhonda McInnes, Rona, sorry, excuse me, Rona McInnes, who is the executive director from the BC Association of Magazine Publishers. The organization connects and promotes the BC magazine industry by representing arts and culture publications, news, business, lifestyle, leisure, and special interest magazines. Here's my conversation with Rona earlier today. Heard about this new Canadian periodical fund? Um, I mean, we're very, obviously very pleased. Mm -hmm. um, we think it's great that the um, federal government is showing a commitment towards Canadian magazines and BC magazines, and we think that's great. The fund itself, I, I don't know that it's that much more money than what was being given in the past. I think it's... Um, it does seem as though it might be taking the same amount that was previously in the Publications Assistance Program yes, and the it, Canadian and magazine. And adding that together and just changing the funding model mm -hmm. itself. So it's not as though it's um, adding a, a stimulus for in terms of the times of the economy. It's uh, just re-looking at the way they administer those funds. And there's obviously some good uh, points and some uh, other ones that need to be looked at. And, uh, you know, until we find out exactly how the new periodical fund is going to be administered, we won't know exactly what a reaction would be to it. Right. There's obviously some specifics that we haven't been given at this point, but we're sure pleased to see that they uh, are taking serious, seriously uh, the need to uh, fund our vibrant industry. It, it's a shame that there aren't more details about well, yeah, I mean, we're starting there? to hear some little trickles. Like, well, we've heard uh, most recently that they're thinking of saying that for the literary and arts magazines that you're going to have to have a minimum 5,000 circulation. Well, that's really big for a lot of the small magazines, and they used to be put in a separate category and thought of slightly differently. And now they're saying, no, no, it's all going to be all in one. So that's something that we're our advocacy committee is looking into mm -hmm. um you know as, because we do have literary and arts magazines as part of our membership so right. you know if we had more information about that we'd be jumping on it but it, it's kind of strange to have it um not being as as transparent as we'd like absolutely and also there's this this clause i mean it says that only magazines and non-daily newspapers with paid or requested circulation and right. at least 80 percent of canadian content will be eligible yes and i mean i'm i know that most of the the publications out of bc are are mostly cancon but i mean what about how do you how do you factor online magazines into that or, or things like the tie that don't that aren't right. paid for circulation etc yeah yeah i mean what's the way to do it do it fairly and I mean I, I I do admit that they have quite a challenge uh, you know ahead of them in trying to to administer funds fairly and um, you know at, at least that they've 
you know, gone through this process in the past year and sort of, you know, put things together and tried to, to even it out. But, you know, definitely still needs to, to listen to industry and, and, uh, and, and make sure that it's getting done correctly. Definitely. Yeah. Do, do you think that BC publishers who are already receiving some funding, do you think this new fund will change how they receive funds from the government and whether or not their ability to produce the award-winning and wonderful magazines that do come out of BC, will that change? I don't think so. I think, I'm, I'm hoping um, for those that are already receiving it, that it will be administered in, in a, a more efficient manner. Uh, my understanding, one of the recommendations w- w- that was made was that you would be funded once and there would be uh, a less onerous system in, involved where you wouldn't have to do as much reporting as what had been done in the past. Mm. And there might be a little more flexibility um, for magazines to move both between the print and the online versions of their of their magazines. Right, and I was going to ask about that because it does seem that we are in a climate where more and more community newspapers and newspapers in general and publications are moving online. Is the general magazine industry moving that way? I think online publications enhance a print publication. I don't think we'll ever see an abandonment of print. You know, magazine readership was up in the United States 14% last year. It continues to rise where television drops and, and uh, you know, it continues to be really popular. And, and so I think as magazines look to the Internet to enhance their print editions, yeah, I think you're going to see more of that and, mm-hmm. and uh, more interesting uh, styles of, of marketing and, and content delivery. But uh, definitely I don't think it will ever replace it. Okay. That's definitely um, reassuring for those of us who, who really love getting that magazine in the mail or however we purchase our magazines uh, to get that physical glossy right. copy in our hands. Um, yeah. One thing I, I do want to sort of get an impression of is the state of BC's magazine industry. I come from Toronto originally, and when I moved out to BC, there seems to be so many more publications coming out of this province, and uh, a lot of really amazing award-winning magazines and and smaller publications. Can you give listeners and myself a sense of of how BC's magazine and small publication industry is different from other places in Canada? Gosh, um, well, you know, the West is Mm -hmm. always different. There tends to be a sense of um, independence here. that maybe you don't find uh, so much because we're young. It's young, you know. The province is young, and mm-hmm. um, so I think there's yeah, there's a, a more of a sense of independence. But in in terms of you know magazine publishing, it it is similar throughout Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, like, but we have publications like Geist and. Uh, um, but yeah, you also have the Walrus out of Ontario. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, Canada itself puts out some great great magazines and, and I, I think Canada or BC puts out magazines that, that you know are unique to the to the Western experience mm-hmm. um, it, 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 the fact that BC readers support the style of magazines that BC publishers put out um, I mean that's why that's why they exist that's why they're different because BC readers you know enjoy them um, in a way that maybe people in Ontario wouldn't as much mm-hmm. although I know uh, you know guys for for example, is you know quite popular all across the country. Right. Another thing I was I'm wondering about, and I think every every industry is wondering about these days, is with the looming recession, etc. How do you think magazine publishers in BC are going to be affected by this economic downturn? Yeah. Well, you know, I think 
in Canada, we're a little bit behind what's happening in the States. And I think, um, I, I don't really, we haven't really seen a, a, a big effect yet. Um, BC magazines uh, tend to run pretty lean to start with. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of the magazines that are members with us are niche magazines. Mm-hmm. And they're still able to deliver um, a really good value for their advertisers. So I don't think that, that we've seen a great deal um, of effect right now. I mean, certainly everybody's feeling the pinch, but uh, I, you know, I don't think there's anything drastic at the moment. Right. Coming from your position being an insider in the BC magazine industry, what are some some perhaps not well enough known magazines that are produced right here in BC that people should maybe look for the next time they're passing by a newsstand and want to experience something a little different? Oh gosh, well, we have 80 uh, titles in our uh, stable, and um, it, they range from all sorts of genres. We have arts and culture, literary magazines, uh, magazines about uh, environment, uh, news, opinion, scholarly magazines, uh, lifestyle, people, places, special interest, mm-hmm. uh, leisure. So, I mean, I would say, I, I mean, I can't, I can't give you a giant list. You can't uh, pick one? <laughs> uh, one. Well, I wouldn't want to pick one out of all our members, but we do have, and we, you know, we have Think, which is uh, written by students. We have Western Living, we have the British Columbia Magazine, Geist, as you mentioned earlier, Event, Capilano Review, um, yes, Mag and No Mag, which are magazines for kids. BC mm-hmm. Outdoors, Vancouver View, um, Vancouver Review, I should say. Uh, Pacific Yachting, TV Week. Um, you know the Tai. We have some, yeah. you know, online um, representative, uh, representatives and. Uh, well, something for everyone, I guess. There really is something for everyone. Uh, one of the taglines of our little industry uh, association is made here and read everywhere, and, and they really are. Definitely. Well, Rona, thank you so much for talking to me this afternoon. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. My pleasure. Rona McInnes is the executive director of the BC Association of Magazine Publishers. I reached her on the Sunshine Coast earlier this afternoon. <laughs> Music Waste 2009 is now accepting submissions. This year's festival runs June 10th to 13th. This summer, Music Waste will be celebrating 15 years of independence. As the other local independent music festivals, large and small, have come and gone, Music Waste will once again highlight Vancouver's most interesting and innovative music. A testament to the strength of this musical community and the wealth of talent, Music Waste is Vancouver's independent music festival. Submission deadline, April 15th. Please email your submissions to submissions at musicwaste.ca and or for more information contact Cameron Reed by email at cameron at musicwaste.ca or visit the website at www.musicwaste.ca. Hey there, my name is Tracy Fuller and this is the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM right here in Vancouver. It's 5.16 and I'm going to hit us up with a little bit of music right now. Um, This one is going out to all of my friends up in the Yukon because as of yesterday, the historic Yukon Quest came to an end. This is the 26th annual Yukon Quest, which is an international sled dog race that starts in, in Whitehorse and goes all the way to Fairbanks, Alaska. Now, um, the, the winner of this year's um, Yukon Quest is named Sebastian 
Chanel, and I hope I'm saying that right, um, and they fin- completed the 1,600-kilometer race in a total of 23 hours, oh, nine days, 23 hours, and 20 minutes. That's incredible. Usually they expect the race to go for at least two weeks. Now, the sled, sled dog team had a tight race between um, Schnell and the, the fellow Yukoner, Hugh Neff, it, which resulted in a photo finish this year, which is uh, an amazing feat, and it was probably uh, the closest the closest finish in history. So um, both of the contenders were very content, but a little bit uh, tired and under the weather, of course. But uh, Little John of Alaska came in third, arriving in Fairbanks at 11.52 a.m. That is on yesterday, uh, February 24th. And so in recognition of the historic event of the sled dog race, I'm going to play Chad Van Galen's song, Wind Driving Dogs. And here it is for you on CITR 101.9 FM.
That was Wind Driving Dogs by Chad Van Galen. Chad will be playing at the Commodore Ballroom right here in Vancouver this Friday night. That's, he'll be performing alongside Hawksley Workman, who is from northern Ontario, right near where my dad lives, actually. Um, so definitely get down to the Commodore this Friday and check that out. This Thursday at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre, new life will be breathed into Ballet BC. Goldberg Variations Side 2, Adam and Eve and Steve and Carmen are on the bill for the beginning of this, the new beginning of the company's uncertain future. If you'll recall, they were brought off the brink of bankruptcy this past December, and uh, we're hoping that they're going to live long into the future. But headlining the new program is the Goldberg Variations Side 2, Adam and Eve and Steve. And this new and innovative ballet was created specifically for Ballet BC by one of Canada's most original choreographers, James Kudelka. The former director and resident choreographer of the National Ballet of Canada was convinced by Ballet BC's artistic director, John Ellen, to come to Vancouver as a freelance choreographer and leave behind his rural home in southern Ontario where he spends his summers working as an artisan baker. Um, According to Kevin Griffin's article in Monday's Vancouver Sun, the new ballet starts off with the dancers in male and female pairs weaving intricate classical ballet patterns to J.S. Bach's Baroque music. You can hear a little bit of uh, the Goldberg variations in the back, performed by none other than Canada's very own... Oh, gosh. Oh, it's... it's. I, how did I forget? I'm, I'm missing it. Goldberg variations. Well... It'll come to me in a moment. I'm very embarrassed for forgetting this on air right now. <laughs> All right. But, um, yes. So, the 40-minute ballet breezes by, says Griffins, and Kudelka's new ballet has both the structure and invent inventive movement. It's funny, it's musing, it's amusing, it's beautiful, it's moving, it's everything you want a ballet to be. And I will be attending the, the opening performance this Thursday alongside my dance critic, Melanie Cooksdorf. And we'll be bringing you a review of the ballet this Friday on the Arts Update at the end of the week. Now, if any of you out there listening can think of the name of the famous Glenn Gould. Glenn Gould. There we have it. All right. I don't think I've saved my reputation. No, I will be forever scorned for forgetting Glenn Gould's name. But yes. If you would like to join Mel and I out there to watch the opening of this wonderful ballet, you can call in to CITR right now. It, the number is 604-822-CITR. That's UBC-CITR. And you can get a free set of tickets to this Thursday night's performance of the Goldberg Variations Side 2, Adam, Eve, and Steve, and Carmen. So give us a call right now. Now, sticking on the lines of dance, I, on February 21st, our dance critic, Melanie Cooksdorf, attended Deca Dance by Israel's Batsheva Dance Company. The company is considered Israel's leading cultural ambassador, and with good reason. Batsheva is maybe the best dance company you've never heard of. Here's Mel's report on the Batsheva's dance, Deca Dance. Batsheva. People said that name to me with such reverence that even though I had never heard of the Israeli dance company before, I expected 
great, great things. And they managed to completely shatter these expectations. The first piece had all 17 dancers wearing suits, sitting on chairs in a semicircle. They would explode into movement, tear off part of their clothes, and sink back into their chairs. It was a huge expression of power. Each one of these dancers is an exceptional mover. And unlike a ballet company's dancers, everyone in Batsheva is an individual with strong bodies and different strengths that the choreography lets them explore. The 80-minute show was called Deca Dance. Its choreographer and the artistic director of the Batsheva Dance Company, Ohad Naharin, wrote in the program that Deca Dance is not a new work. In Deca Dance, I took sections from different works, he writes. It was like I was telling only either the beginning, middle, or ending of many stories, but when I organized it, the result became as coherent as the original, if not more. What Batsheva showed us is what dance should be. When you see good dance like this, it evaporates all the nagging doubts you get when you see bad dance shows. Doubts like, dance can't be meaningful, dance is cheesy, self-indulgent, and given way too much positive feedback, when hard work alone is not enough to make good art. But when you see good dance like this, world-class experimental So good, you never ask what it was about, because it was about everything. It speaks to you. There definitely are themes that emerge from each piece. Each section would flow into one another. And the dancing was pushing the limits. Emotional, raw, funny, not afraid to be ugly, and not afraid to be pretty. Unafraid of anything, really. One of the euphoric highlights of this incredible evening was when the dancers came into the audience looking for a dance partner. They each chose someone, brought them on stage, and danced with them. The audience members hurried back to their seats while one of Batsheva's dancers slow danced with his partner. When he too was...
Hey there, this is the Eller, and it's almost, well, it's almost 20 to 6. Um, the last piece I'm bringing you today is a rebroadcast of a piece aired earlier this week, but I think it's important to listen to, and I'm going to intro it right now. Starting at sunset this past Monday, February 23rd, and running all night long until sunrise on Tuesday, February 24th, the 7th Annual Homelessness Marathon served up 14 hours of people-powered radio live from the streets of Montreal. Broadcasting from outside the Native Friendship Centre with the goal of being a consciousness-raising event, the marathon was hosted by CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. CKUT is a non-profit campus community radio station, just like CITR, which is owned and operated by students of McGill University. University. It's operated almost entirely by volunteer membership, and and CKUT uses the Homelessness Marathon to provide an opportunity for homeless people and their supporters to take to the airwaves and allow a nationwide discussion on homelessness issues and possible solutions. CITR's news department contributed approximately one hour of content to help the marathon out this year, and it included an interview that I did with Vancouver journalist Francis Beulah. I think that this interview went rather rather well, and so I'm rebroadcasting it now for your consideration. I hope you enjoy it. Who are the homeless? And how did they get that way? Should housing be as much a right as education and health care? These questions have plagued Canadian communities and divided public opinion for decades. In 1999, Vancouver journalist Frances Beulah received the Atkinson Fellowship in Public Policy. She spent that year visiting shelters, housing projects and low-income homes across Canada, the U.S. and Europe to find out how homelessness is defined and how these definitions shape policy. Her findings were published in No Place Like Home, a 52-page public policy report on homelessness. A veteran journalist of 25 years, Beulah is fascinated by Vancouver's split personality. People living here are incredibly proud of the city's attributes, yet they are also ashamed of its festering underbelly. Frances her career writing about urban issues and city politics in Vancouver. I sat down with her at her home in Vancouver in early February. No Place Like Home is a 52-page public policy report on homelessness that you wrote in 1999. When you started writing and researching the articles that's in that, what were you hoping to find, or what were you hoping to expose? Well, um, it's hard to remember now, but at the time, homelessness was not very prominent on people's radar. I had started to hear people talking about the problems of homelessness and housing at city council over the previous couple of years, Uh, but it was not a big issue. There weren't a huge number of homeless people in Vancouver. It was fairly at a fairly low level and restricted to pretty much a few blocks in the downtown east Mm -hmm. side. Uh, and maybe, you know, a little bit uh, you know, along the beaches in Kitsilano and so on. But it was not that big an issue here. 
it was starting to emerge as a really big issue in Toronto. And in the year that I had to research this, it became one of the top national issues. Mm. Uh, just, uh, you know, as the year progressed, um, because homelessness in Toronto in particular skyrocketed, there were people sleeping on the streets everywhere, the church basements were full, there were food programs. And it was the first real emergence in Canada of the kind of homelessness problem that had already been seen in the United States. But really, in in Canada, it had emerged later because there had been social housing programs, federal social housing programs and provincial ones up until 1994. And so there was kind of a constant stock of, you know, low-cost housing um, coming into most uh, provinces uh, up until 1994. That ended, and then by around 1996, 97, 98, you're starting to hear more about it. So when I started, um, this was just a new issue. Nobody knew very much about it. Like, why were these people showing up? Uh, what was the cause of this? Were there any solutions? Um, what what are we going to do about this? And so on. It was really a new issue, uh, which is hard for us to imagine now, but it was a very new issue back then. What did you find out in your 52-page report? One of the things that I did was I went around and looked at models for dealing with homelessness in different places. I went to Amsterdam, I went to Miami, mm-hmm. I went to San Diego, I went to Baltimore, um, I went to several cities across Canada. And what people were just starting to do then, at first, you know, homelessness, um, you know, appeared as a problem, there were tons of homeless people on the streets, people were just starting services and sort of trying to figure out, you know, what to do about this tidal wave. In the year even that I was working, um, there was the beginnings of research um, to try to analyze where were people coming from, what were the economic conditions that caused it. Um, And I remember even back then, one of the things, there's a, a great homelessness researcher, Dennis Culhane in Philadelphia, and he spent a long time in shelters um, um, researching exactly who was in shelters. And one of the things he discovered, which is important, and it has come back again and again and again as people look for solutions, is that there are different um, groups of people who are homeless. Um, Some are what you call the long-term chronic homeless, and they're in and out of shelters all the time. They seem to have fallen right out of the system. Um, They use up a huge number of resources, even though they represent only maybe 15% of the of the total homeless population in a year who get seen in shelters. They're there over and over and over again. They're often living on the street. They have a lot of health problems. Um, And they're a really critical group. Um, And then you have a much larger group of people who are transient. They work for a while. They have a home. Something happens. They lose their job. They lose their home. They end up in shelters for a while. Um, and then, you know, things pick up and they, they move back out. And so uh, what you've seen um, from that research, what has emerged from that research is people have realized you need different approaches because with the chronic group, they're a, much more, uh, they're a group that's much more entrenched. So you need much more aggressive measures to try to help them get back into something more stable. Um, and, and then you need different measures with the trend 
transient group, um, partly to make sure that they don't become chronic. Right. Uh, and I think that when you see homelessness problems growing in cities, it's partly because they're not dealing with their more transient population very well. So those people become more and more entrenched. They, they find they have no way out. Uh, and they end up being the people who are on the street, in the emergency wards, in the shelters, over and over again because nobody dealt with them quickly enough. Is that what happened here in Vancouver? You said that in 1999 the problem was restricted to a really small portion of the city, whereas now it's quite different. Right. Well, and in 1999, BC was one of the two provinces along with Quebec that even after the federal government stopped its social housing programs, mm. BC and Quebec kept a provincial pro um, social housing program going. And that lasted until 2001. And then um, the, there was a new government elected, the Liberal government in, in BC. Um, they cancelled the existing social housing program. And you started to see homelessness problems uh, climb in BC. Right. Obviously, in the last three years, uh, that government has now come back to housing, really targeted a lot of efforts at people with the most problems um, in an attempt to deal with it. They also cut welfare, uh, accessibility to welfare. So you saw this explosion of... Um, uh, people who then had no income were sort of at the bottom of the income and social barrel. Uh, they, you know, start off as transient homeless. They become chronic and permanent. And that's one of the interesting things about homelessness in BC is there's a very high rate of people who are now chronic, who are entrenched in living on the street or in shelters. I think it's 50%. I'd have to check the statistics in the most recent report, but I remember noticing it. It was much higher than what Dennis Culhane talked about in Philadelphia. And when you have chronic uh, homeless people, and then more being added all the time because you have a, a more transient group that then falls into being um, chronically homeless, uh, then your problems really build up. In 1999, with No Place Like Home, what were the recommendations or what were the main ideas that you reported were the best ways to help people who right. are either transient or even entrenched? Yeah. Well, the I mean, number one, you have to be really aggressive about it. Because what happens when you start to get a certain level of homelessness on the street is it becomes accepted by everyone. Mm -hmm. Homeless people start to feel more comfortable just being part of a crowd that's living out on the street because there's lots of other people they know who are out there doing that. And the public um, starts to accept it. You know, at first when homelessness appears very visibly in cities, people are horrified. Oh my God, how could this be happening? And after a while, they accept it and it just becomes an annoyance. So um, for both of those reasons, it's very important to be aggressive when people start showing up. And then also you need that two-pronged approach. You need one approach that's for more transient people to make sure, okay, if they show up in a shelter, um, you know, find out what the problem is, get them back, you know, in their own accommodation with a job, with some kind of training, with something right away. With the more chronic people, you, you need really aggressive efforts to get them back into a more stable way of living. Because once you've been on the street for a couple of years, it's not that easy to just, you know, come back to an apartment. Vancouver's new mayor, Gregor Robertson, has declared that he's going to end homelessness, which might be seen by many as an aggressive statement. 
But do you think that that's helpful? Do you think that that idea is even possible? Well, I do think it's helpful. Um, you know, th- 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 there are a lot of serious problems in the world and um, they don't get solved by people saying, oh, this is all really complicated and wringing their hands and saying, we just don't know what to do or where to start. You have to start with the premise that, yes, you can do something about it. Maybe it sounds, you know, idealistic or like political rhetoric, but really um, you don't get anywhere unless you uh, say that you're going to try to tackle the problem in a really comprehensive way. So I do think that's important. And that's what a lot of American cities did. Uh, they, uh, several years ago, started, several American cities started a program saying, we're going to end homelessness in 10 years or whatever. And no, you're never going to totally end it. But you can, um, there are cities that have shown that um, aggressive efforts do make a difference and that you can have an impact. Uh, and I think it's very important with big social problems not to sit around saying, oh, we don't know what to do. And uh, this is this is so complex that we don't know where to start. And when there's nothing that we can do to, you know, we can't figure out what to do. Every social problem in the world has been solved by people who said, yes, I know this seems impossible, but I'm going to try to find a way. Right. So some critics will say that the media or journalists are somewhat to blame for perhaps not shedding enough light on it in the beginning or not bringing the the problem to the fore often enough. You've been a reporter in Vancouver for over 25 years, and you obviously have expertise and you understand the issues surrounding homelessness. What role does the media play in trying to create change and to solve the homelessness issues? Well, I think the media has actually done... You know, not a bad job. I mean, homelessness is visible, and so it attracts media attention. Uh, There are issues where I think the media has not uh, covered things very well because they're difficult to get at and um, they're uh, uh, somewhat hidden from view. But in this case, you know, homeless people showing up on the streets, like the media noticed that. There has been a lot of reporting done. There's been If you go and do Google searches, you'll find umpteen series uh, in newspapers across North America about homelessness and what to do about it. If there is a problem, it's that sometimes they focus on the individual cases and not so much the structural issues that cause it. But I mean, I've seen some great reporting. Like there's a there's been a was a fabulous series done in San Francisco on homelessness and and um, the causes of it and who was involved in it and so on. There is a bit of a tendency to focus on the personal stories as opposed to the really structural problems. As I said, like homelessness is a function of the housing market, and sometimes there is a tendency because that's what we see as human beings to go well this person's homeless because he's drug addicted he's mentally ill he's you know got some behavior problems or whatever and one of my mentors when I did the Atkinson project was David Holchansky who's you know the most knowledgeable you know housing academic in Canada and he 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 pointed out that there are many people who are mentally ill or alcoholic or addicted uh, or who have behavior problems who manage to stay in their housing. So mental illness or alcoholism or whatever isn't per se the root cause of homelessness. It contributes in certain cases. But in a system where there is enough housing at enough levels for all different kinds of people, that shouldn't be a reason why people are homeless. So what do you think the next step is? From your personal opinion, where where do we go from here? Gregor Robertson has said that he's going to end homelessness. 
what can citizens and government and society do from this point to really engage that idea and really try to make it happen? Well, what they're doing here in Vancouver is they've opened up a whole bunch more shelters because Vancouver has about 800 to 1,000 people sleeping out on the streets. So Every night? Every night. Not always the same ones, but 800 to 1,000 every night. So the first thing is to get those people off the street. Um, I mean, you're just creating problems for yourself. Uh, and the shelters are full, so it's not like they could go into the existing shelters. So they're creating new shelters. Once you get people into shelters, you can start moving them along. You know, one of the uh, places that I was really impressed with was Amsterdam, because Amsterdam has a whole system of, you know, you have shelters and then you have a place where it's transitional housing where you're a little bit more independent and people are still, but people are still kind of monitoring you to make sure you can you can handle your housing okay and then you move to a a next stage and then a next stage and they had about five stages um, that they take people along um, until eventually they're living in their own apartments pretty much independently without too much monitoring and that's the kind of system you need and a lot of people will say oh that's molly coddling and you know who needs that and they just need a job or they just need a housing but the reality is that there are people um, in the system, um, and especially in, in a competitive housing market, who are going to need some kind of network in place to help them stay in um, stay in their housing and uh, you know become as functional as they can be. Sometimes that's not going to be super functional. You know that's the reality of the society we live in. Uh, but if you have a, a kind of a stepped process where people can maybe move along and then they move maybe to a stage and then they can't go any further. They just don't have the capacity to do that. Um, that's what you need. And I think that's what Vancouver is actually, and the province, I should say, is trying to work on. But you have shelters for everybody who needs it, but then you have all these stages beyond shelters where you move people from stage to stage to the level where they can function um, to the best of their capacities. Do you think that that kind of model is possible and and feasible here in Vancouver? I mean, anything's possible if you put the money into it, you know, um, and if you persist at it. I mean, that's the only way problems ever get solved. I mean, the challenge is to persist when, you know, maybe you're not solving things in two years or three years or four years. I mean, Amsterdam's system has been in place for a very long time and arose out of, it's part of a structure of, of, you know, lots of social services uh, there. And so whether the city and the province are conti- will continue to invest money and to develop a st- system that has those stages in it and make sure that those stages are coordinated uh, so that you don't get someone up to stage two and then say, okay, now you're off on your own. Um, you have to go and, f- you know, move on to the next stage yourself. So, you know, I mean, obviously it is possible. We have lived in societies before where there's been a lower level of homelessness. Not every city or country has the level of homelessness that we see here in Vancouver. So clearly there's something that's happening there. Frances Bula, thank you so much for speaking with me. Okay, well, good luck with everything. Frances Bula is the city columnist and contributing editor with Vancouver Magazine. She also teaches journalism at Langara College in Vancouver. 
She reported for the Vancouver Sun for 21 years, and she's a regular contributor to the Globe and Mail, BC Business Magazine, CBC Radio, and CKNW 980 AM. I spoke with her at her home in Vancouver. For the 2009 homeless... CKUT, CKUT Radio 90.3 FM in Montreal is a non-profit campus community radio station owned by the students of McGill University. It's operated almost entirely by its volunteer membership, and they host the annual Homelessness Marathon, which is a consciousness-raising event, and it's now in its seventh year. And that, my friends, brings us to the end of the arts report for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. I, it's always a pleasure for me to, uh, to be able to be here on the radio and speaking to you today. If you, remember, if you want tickets to the, ballet, to the ballet this Thursday or to Fuse at the Vancouver Art Gallery this Friday, send an email to arts at citr.ca and I'll be sure to hook you up with some tickets. We'd love to see you out there. I will be at both events. And so if you want to introduce yourself, please, I'd love to meet any of my listeners. Audio Text is up next with Julie and Eric. And today I'm going to leave you with a track by Cadence Weapon, who will be performing this Saturday at the Biltmore Cabaret. This is In Search of the Youth Crew by Cadence Weapon. And for all of you out there, I hope you have an excellent week. I hope you survive the snow tonight. There's supposed to be 10 centimeters centimeters falling here in Vancouver. So uh, make sure you've got your warm clothing on, maybe uh, some long johns and a toque. So take care, have a great week, and I will talk to you next week on The Arts Report. Have a good one. Summer's discreet about it. Got hammers in the wrist and the line of gout. And it's those kids with the rubber headbands and deadpan comedy. Close pin to the dress, no spins, just press. Preferably full courtship. Horse kick and torsion. I'm not very sharp, but I'll call in boards if you're down for a lark. You know me, or you know about sharks. It's a reference, less party of the shark. Tank, green to the scene, hardly even started. Hip hop hipsters, dearly departed. Cover the phrase and keep it in your locket. We're all on the floor, regretting the week. But no sailing top or beneath the sheets. You funeral, yes, yeah, send me a wreath.